Hi there. Welcome to Mushroom Hour. Today on Mushroom Hour, we have the honor of speaking with the distinguished Dr. Gordon Walker. Gordon boasts a PhD in biochemistry, molecular and cellular and developmental biology from UC Davis, and has had a passion for wild mushroom hunting that began at the tender age of five. Interestingly, this childhood interest in mushroom hunting ended up being put on ice for about 20 years, but Gordon pursued a different kind of fungal fascination via fermentation. Yeast, after all, is a member of the fungi kingdom. He found a renewed passion for mushrooms when his partner found a job at a winery in Napier, New Zealand. Gordon then moved abroad and spent a good amount of time hiking, visiting botanical gardens, and soon found his old fungal friends had caught his eye again. He snapped pictures of his finds and soon amassed a plethora of fungal photos. He returned to the Bay Area and became a prominent figure in the Napa, Sonoma, and San Francisco mycological communities. His continual broadcasting of those gorgeous fungal finds, his wild food cuisine, and amazing mushroom facts has transformed him into the Instagram and TikTok legend that makes all of us fascinated by fungi. Gordon, it's great to have you on the show. Wow, that was that was quite the introduction. I appreciate that. That's well, a lot of it was from an article that you had sent me, so the heavy lifting was done, <laughs> but it, it was well written. Well, I'm hoping a lot of people who are listening already know about you, already know of your channel, Fascinated by Fungi. I think you do a great job with not only showcasing all these amazing mushrooms, but also making it very approachable, which I love. It's something that people, you don't have to be an expert on mushrooms to dive in and learn something. And if people follow you enough, pick up some themes in the fungal kingdom. Yeah, no, I, I, I definitely... Definitely appreciate that. It's a big focus of what I do with science communication is trying to make it digestible for people. Uh, I got really good practice with that in my PhD. I went to UC Davis because in college I got interested in homebrewing. You know, beer is great. College students like beer. I did a lot of sailing too. And so we, we were regularly, you know, making beer for our sailing parties. And I realized like, man, the beer at the sailing parties is really a notch above the beer any, at any other party. So I gotta figure out how to make my own so I can I can get to that level. I realized after about two years of homebrewing that I was never gonna be very good at homebrewing unless I invested way more money and way more time. Right. So what I decided to do instead was learn the theory and science of fermentation and to really get deep into it with yeast. So I went to UC Davis to do a PhD, dabbled around a little bit of uh, DNA repair and insect olfaction and other things, but I was really you know, focused on wanting to work in fermentation. So I found a, a woman named Dr. Linda Basson, who was a phenomenal mentor to me and a, a very, very good yeast geneticist. and got a chance to kind of learn a lot more about yeast, um, learn a lot more about fungi in general, uh, sort of in, through the lens of wine microbiology. But a, a lot of my work was taking my science and going to a room full of winemakers and trying to explain this very high level you know, microbial interactions and fermentation and yeast physiology and metabolism and genetics to winemakers right. who just wanted an answer and not, you know, a two hour lecture on the intricacies of membrane potential. When I was practicing the communication, to try to keep it digestible right. and, and, you know, kind of topical. And, and the, the flip side is that is that sometimes I had to go to my science colleagues for my grad presentations and present winemaking to people who spent all day thinking about innate little tiny, you know, molecular mechanisms and how an asparagine fit into an active site or something like that. 
didn't care about you know talking about process parameters and uh, and how to turn how many tank turnovers were required to get good phenol extraction. It's been quite a journey. Um, you became a translator of scientific information, yeah. which I think comes through a lot in all the content you put out, uh, which which is great. Just diving a little bit into to hear about your upbringing and kind of how these influences of mushrooms specifically started at five years old. I mean, that's, I, I wish I had started, I wish I had had that exposure at five years old. I mean, I think my, um, my mom came from a family where doing foraging and going out into nature was sort of just a part of what they did. Uh, my grandfather was, I think an entomologist as well as an avid gardener and, and sort of an all round naturalist nature man. So my mom certainly grew up with a, a focus on just keeping an eye on nature. And I, I think that that moment when I was five and we found a puffball, she just happened to take me up to a field where she knew there might be a chance of something after a rain. So she kind of put us in the right position and came across a puffball the size of my head. And kind of five-year-old puffballs. I, I was my head was not as big as it is now, but it was it was <laughs> impressive and it and it really made an impression. Partially because I am 100 percent uh, wired for food. I'm food motivated. You know, if I was a dog, you could train me with treats very easily because I just I just want to eat. Um, so I forever remembered frying up those crispy marshmallowy slices of, of puffball, and it, it really left an impression on me. You know, that along with my dad at one point had a stump in the yard that uh, it was too expensive to get it drilled out, so we inoculated with uh, chicken of the woods. So he inoculated that with these big, beautiful orange shells all over the place, and it was it was magical to get something out of the yard, put it in a pan, throw some butter on it. It's like, wow, this is so good. So. You know, those memories are very food motivated, but they led to a, a much larger, more broader fascination with, with fungi in general. I see here that you had kind of this 20 year gap. So did that not necessarily translate through your teenage years? And then how did you come back to it in academia? I think, I mean, you know, I was, I was interested as a kid and I remember joining like the Harvard Mycology Society. And then I think it sort of headed into winter and we never really got out for a, a foray. And I turned into a preteen and a teenager. And of course, everything that was interesting to me as a child, I pushed away because it wasn't cool anymore. And <laughs> I sort of lost focus. And, you know, I, I ended up going to, um, to UC Santa Cruz and I was drawn there by the ocean uh, primarily, but also the closeness to the redwoods and forest and just a lot of things about Santa Cruz really struck me. And it was a chance to get out of the East Coast and out of cold winters and all that kind of stuff. But I regret the fact that I liked mushrooms, but was not keyed into mushrooms while I was in Santa Cruz because it is one of the most incredible places to go foraging. Right. And I have some memories of sort of randomly seeing mushrooms around you know, campus when I was there, but it never quite struck me. I was, I was too focused on you know, going underwater in Monterey or sailing around the bay and stuff like that. So it's sort of interesting how those innate interests that you have for a whole lifetime can, can lay dormant. Uh, and it wasn't... I think it was uh, after graduating Davis and getting a chance to shift focus and think a about something that wasn't just yeast and fermentation all the time. I sort of said, oh, right, there's a whole world of interesting things that I now have some bandwidth to learn about. I'm not just driven to read scientific papers about this one tiny little you know, focus section. And it's just such a unique way to come into the world of fungi, at least from people I've talked to. Like when you ask people, how do they get into mushrooms? I haven't heard yet of someone being really into yeast and fermentation, but <laughs> was that your undergrad and that's, were you in sciences in your undergrad and then got your PhD? 
Yeah, I, did, I mean, I did biochemistry for both because okay. I could never really choose whether biology or chemistry is more interesting. And so sort of Do both. in that middle road. <laughs> it makes a lot of sense that you have that academic background because you come through really well-spoken. You have a lot of knowledge about these subjects. You're not afraid to use scientific terminology when you're writing. And it's not overloading people with that, but putting it into into kind of the, the milieu of, of Instagram, which is interesting. Thank you. I, that's, I, I aim for that. And it's certainly something I, I try to put out there because I, I believe that everyone is capable of being a PhD level scientist. Because wow. quite honestly, I, I see myself as a lazy idiot a lot of the time. And while empirically, <laughs> that might not be true. I think I feel similar the same way that a lot of people do. And when people look at me and go, oh, you're so smart. I'm like, I'm not smarter than anyone else. And I think, I think any person is inherently capable of doing science at the level that scientists do it. It's really just about your, your motivation and your willingness to stick with it. Mm. Um, and, and that's, I would not recommend that everybody go get a PhD. Definitely not, not in the cards for everybody. But I think everybody's capable of that level of thought. And so I think one of the things that's important for me is, you know, my dad as a professor, and maybe your dad did this with you, is he never talked down to me. Even as a, as a baby, we weren't using baby talk. He was talking to me like I was an adult and I could understand him. Right. And that has always stuck with me in the sense that even when I talk to kids, I try to talk to them as if they will understand. I try to simplify things so they can help them understand. But I right. don't think there's any reason to ever lie about something or sort of make up something that's not true because the truth is always exciting and you just have to find a way to explain it to people that that they can relate to so and i think that is something that's really important is for people to have a base understanding of natural sciences you know whether they have the potential for phd level whether they get there or not but to have a, a fundamental understanding of some of these uh different life sciences is important to being on this planet. I mean, understanding the world around you. And I think it it's a point I try to make with a lot of guests is that it is eminently possible. I think in particular, the world of mushrooms and mycology, because it is so new, uh, because there's kind of an explosion of information right now. We see a lot of people who go from neophyte to pretty well-versed quickly. You know, it happens in a matter of years. You get into this, you get passionate about it, you get inoculated by the fungi in your brain and people get, you know, a, a lot of expertise very quickly. And I think that's something that's exciting for people who are hearing this, who might, this barrier to when they first actually go out mushroom hunting yeah. is when am I sure I know enough where I can go out and think about eating something? It's like, well, if you start going out and doing it, you start using the internet, it actually is eminently achievable a lot faster than you think. It, it is daunting. And I think that's one of the things that kept me from pursuing it for so long is I said, I don't know what to go out and find. I was always waiting for someone to show me or take mm. me or something. And, you know, I remember multiple times where people invited me, but they're like, we're going to get up at four in the morning. And I was like, I don't do that. That's, you know, <laughs> that's not me. It wasn't really until I think I got to New Zealand. You know, you mentioned my partner got a, a winery job there. I yeah. thought I was going to be lecturing at a local university. Turns out they were not ready for a wine microbiology person to come help them out. Uh, they were they were busy with harvest and other things. So I ended up just kind of hiking around some of the local parks in Napier and I saw mushrooms and I was like, well, these are cool. And, you know, I remember seeing, I think I saw some of the red cracking bolites, Cirocomelis, and I was just trying to figure out what, what the heck are these things? Uh, right. Are they edible? You know, endless amounts of Googling and searching. It wasn't having like one mushroom book that I could refer to. You know, we were traveling. I didn't have any books. But I had access to all of these websites. I had access to photos. 
Um, that was a big one because I think so many people ask like, what mushroom book should I get? And you're like, well, no book has an extensive collection of photos. At most right. they have one good photo with like the mushroom in different stages, but still that's usually from one site, from one collection, one time a year. And there's a lot of phenotypic diversity in the way that mushrooms can look, um, especially with, you know, within a species or within a genus. Um, there's even things that look very similar, but are completely unrelated. And you can't, you know, that has fooled mu mushroom taxonomists for years and everything is getting reorganized, you know, because of the DNA sequencing and the stuff that's going on. Right, but, right. You know, it's, people always ask, what, what do I do to get into this? Well, just go out and look. Getting out in the woods and then using the internet like we do for everything else <laughs> is a pretty easy starting point to get into this. There's, you know, this huge community that you can tap into. It's people like yourself. It's people like Rachel Zoller of Yellow Eleanor, people like uh, Leah Mycelia, people on Instagram that I really started to accelerate my learning getting into this. Now, when you were in New Zealand, were you also connecting with any accounts there that were kind of filling you in on, on what to hunt for? Or? Yeah, there was, there was a couple local accounts. Um, there was one website I found called hiddenforest.nz. And that guy, I forget his name, but he had a really phenomenal collection of resources. And specifically, New Zealand was kind of a nice place to get started because, uh, because it's an island, because it's fairly isolated. There was a lot of species there that they said, this species occurs only here, only on the North Island. Or right. like, you look at America and you can find phylloides all over the country. There's a lot of mushrooms where they're like, well, on the East Coast, this one's not toxic, but on the West Coast, it is. But also, yeah. there's, they've been found on both coasts. And you're like, well, how the heck do I even start to like understand, understand <laughs> this? It's so, it's so scary. Um, something like iNaturalist was actually a huge step for me to understand that I could search stuff that was nearby. I could look for users who were focused on the types of species and habitats that I was looking for. I could scout out virtually new places to go. And having resources like Mushroom Expert, Michael Quo has done an amazing job just putting tons of very well curated information on the internet. I think one of the other things we're seeing, especially with the DNA sequencing, is mushrooms, much like yeast actually, don't necessarily have hard boundaries on their species. There's a lot of kind of gradients and crosstalks and groups of mushrooms that are closely related. And there's probably some interbreeding and hybridization because mm -hmm. everything exists on a little bit of a gradient. And this is true with most species, right? There's, unless there's like a really huge mountain in between something, there's probably a right. little bit of crosstalk between things that are cl closely related in some chimeras and hybrids and all sorts of stuff like that. And so sometimes it's necessary to have more than one visual reference. You need a whole bunch of them. And that, that's a big one, especially if you're thinking about eating something and you don't have a friend who's a professional forager and can show you exactly what you want to pick. You need to get a lot of, a lot of data points and really understand, get consensus from people. And that's, that's what I started doing. I, on Instagram, I realized I couldn't just spam my normal friends with endless pictures of mushrooms. <laughs> um, I was going to get a couple of likes, but at some point people were going to get really sick of me. Originally, I started my Instagram just to post lots of food pictures because people were getting sick of me posting food pictures on Facebook and would tell me I'm distracting them all the time and stuff like that. So started a whole other Instagram for mushrooms. And that was, yeah, some of the first accounts I remember getting feedback from were, were Leah, were Rachel. There was people that I, I really looked up to. And it's amazing now that I've gotten to like meet those people, interact with them. Right. So many people in the mushroom community have been so welcoming, kind, open, and it's just been, the response has been overwhelming. I mean, it, it really is incredible to, to solicit that feedback from the community, 
to see people that are getting as excited and enthusiastic as I am. I mean, it really touches me when people tell me that I've inspired them to go look for stuff and, and ideally looking for it in like a responsible way too, right? Because we're, we're out in nature. We need to act as stewards of nature and not just go out and pick every single mushroom or kick every plant we see. We want to go out and, and be part of the ecosystem and, and, you know, defend and understand the biodiversity that's out there because it, it gives us joy and from a economic perspective, there's tons of untapped potential therapeutics and polysaccharides and all sorts of things that can contribute to human health. And I think that's, especially when we're looking at like the COVID-19 situation right now, if we look for <laughs> antivirals in mushrooms, I mean, that's, that's a yeah. place to start screening natural products that will work against a virus. So the entry point to how you got started in this is really approachable. It's really simple. I mean, it, I always say, if you get passionate about something, you get stoked about something, that's the quickest way to get into it. Get stoked about it. Yeah. Start posting pictures, start following other accounts, start interacting with people. Cause I found the same thing. People in the mushroom community for the most part are pretty eminently approachable. It's kind of this online resource set, mushroom expert, iNaturalist, other accounts in this larger social media community that can really get you up to speed quickly. I did have a lot of value that I got out of meeting with in-person groups. As you know now that you're back oh, yeah, in the yeah. Bay Area. Psychology groups. I, I think the, the biggest focus in some ways is go local, right? Yeah. Yep. That, it really is. If you pick up a Mushroom ID book, you're going to find stuff that's out of the scope of your area and it's not going to be helpful. It's, it's going to be confusing and, and potentially intimidating. But right. stick local, finding people who understand where you are, what you're going to find. And, and I mean, I love finding accounts that are local because it's a phenology report. I can wake up every morning and say, what the heck is happening in the Bay Area? I'll go check your account and see what, is, <laughs> what have you been finding? What, what can I find out there? And, and I can even look at like accounts that I know are in Oregon and Humboldt and see what they're finding and say, okay, in a couple of weeks, it's going to trickle down or look at right. LA and see, okay, here I am on this spectrum of north to south. What's happening with the rain? What's happening with the temperature? And that's, I mean, for me, that's been a real interesting uh, thing because I don't think I ever paid that much attention in some ways to the weather. Is it nice outside? Yeah, great. But now I'm like, right. Ooh, did it go down to 50 last night? Or like, you know, what's the relative humidity? How many days of fog have we had? And that's, you know, keying into stuff really helps you know, this is one of the first years that I could tell we had a foggy day. I'm going to go out and look for some chicken in the woods because it's going to be there. But if I don't go out in the morning and I go out in the afternoon, that chicken in the woods is going to be dried up because it's like 100 degrees. So I got to get out at certain times of the day or things like that to find a mushroom in the condition that I wanted. When you get into mushroom hunting, it makes us care more about the environment around us inherently. Yeah, it absolutely does. I mean, I, you know, here in Napa, I see the oak chaparral as pretty much my primary habitat that I can look at. And I mm -hmm. see two, two of the parks I go to have very similar makeup of trees, but totally different ecology. One park is very healthy. The trees have lots of mycorrhizal mushrooms associated with them. Nice thick duff around every tree. But the other park uh, has some bay trees there. And bay trees are a uh, vector and sort of ecological niche for sudden oak death or Phytophthora remora, which is like a oh, little wow. kind of malaria-like protist that gets into oak trees and just wrecks shop on their immune system, basically. And while it doesn't kill the tree directly, it weakens the immune system enough, some, something like you know HIV for a, a human kind of would, that other diseases will come in and kill the tree. And it doesn't forever kill the tree because oak trees have little tubers and they grow back up, but you're losing these old growth oaks all over the place. And so in this other park, I see virtually no mycorrhizal mushrooms and all saprophytic parasitic mushrooms. So there's 
honey mushrooms and jack-o'-lanterns and lion's mane and oyster mushrooms, all the stuff that's associated with dead and decay, but none of the mycorrhizal mushrooms. And these parks are, I don't know, two miles apart. And it's just wow. wild to see such a big difference. Um, and I've been totally paying attention to that, but also the habitat and loss of habitat because Napa is mostly vineyards and it should be mostly oak chaparral. But, you know, they've ripped out a lot of these old oaks, especially because oaks are harbor diseases like our malaria and, uh, and honey mushrooms that can be pathogenic to grapevines. So it's, it's really interesting to sort of see the push and pull and understanding Napa has recently passed some environmental measures to try to protect this oak chaparral and, and uh, you know, particular habitats. But yeah, it's, it's made me far more aware of nature. It's also made me very jealous of people who live in Sonoma and are that much closer <laughs> to you know, tan oaks and the coast and uh, some right. of the habitat that I would really like to get into on a more regular basis. Why are oaks such a good host for so many amazing mushroom species? I mean, I think, I think in some ways it's the position ecologically that oak trees hold in our environment, just because they are kind of one of the keystone species for creating habitat. There's a lot of diversity of Quercus species in California and then right. Tan oaks aren't even a real oak species. They're, they're a completely different genre. They're not a Quercus species. I don't know that much about like, you know, tree ecology and that's where I, yeah. Yeah, I, I have lots to learn, but I, I do think that it's because they're one of those keystone species. Although what I fear is if you know the history of the American chestnut, I think that that was probably a host to a lot of very important mycorrhizal mushrooms. And when you saw the American chestnut disappear, I don't know if there's data out there as to how the, the mycological uh, composition of the East Coast changed, but it, it definitely did. And it probably allowed other species to come up and other, you know, things that are associated with different trees. Um, but I wonder what was lost in that. And in, in a similar way that I think a lot of California at one point was covered in redwoods. And we don't right. consider redwoods to have a lot of edible species associated with them. So maybe at some point the, the ecology of California forest systems changed by pulling all the redwoods out and allowing tan oak and madrone and some of those intermediate forests, even dug, dug fir, to get established and bring populations of fungi along with those. So it's, it's really interesting, I think, how where you find mushrooms in different places are really an influence on what's happened in that habitat with the trees and you know, human influences there. Um, disturbance ecology is a huge thing. I think measuring and, and doing surveys of the mushrooms in different areas is a way to track the health of ecosystems. Um, even in New Zealand, I know that they plant a lot of uh, pine forests and they will clear cut them. They don't, they don't like rogue and remove certain trees. They just clear cut the whole thing. But one of the things they do to see, I think it's about 25 years to forest maturity, mm -hmm. but they look for the mushrooms that show up. Wow. So there's initial like colonizing species. And I believe that they seed with some mycorrhizal species to like help the trees grow. But at some sure, point sure. they can tell once they start seeing particular species of mushrooms in the forest, that those trees are mature and ready to harvest. Wow, that's amazing. So it's kind of fungi and mushrooms as biomarkers or bioindicators for ecological yeah, of, systems. Of, yeah, the, the health of root systems, of how well trees are connected and sharing nutrients. You know, I don't want to get too lost into this because I know it's a huge topic. But, you know, for mushrooms that we're all familiar with on Instagram, the mushrooms we all know and love, Basidio mycota, what yeah. are some of the defining features of Basidio mycota that, that really make them a mushroom? Man. Okay, so this, this is a good one to get into because this is something that I skirted around a lot in my PhD, understand, really, oh. really understanding the difference between like um, Ascomyces and Basidiomyces. Um, no and, getting around it now. 
Yeah, well, I was going to say, in, as far as I know now, there's about five main sections of the fungus kingdom. I forget if it's a, not a phylum. Phyla. Higher, higher class order or something like that. Um, but there's five sections. And there's really only two that, as mushroom people, we care about because there's a lot of things that are like tiny little globules of fungi that live in the soil. And there's marine fungi and some of these other ones that are, you never see them having a fruiting body. So Ascomyces right. and Decigomyces are generally the ones that produce fruiting bodies and thus the things we care about because we can eat them. Uh, but yeast are included in Ascomycota. So that's, that's where I should have really come to understand the difference years ago. And it wasn't until I was putting together a talk on mushrooms that I was like, oh man, I have to teach people this. I need to understand this. So as far as I get it, uh, Basidiomycetes are defined by having spores on what's called a basidia which is something that's microscopically, it's uh, kind of looks like a club or like a, a cylinder almost with yeah. spores that are connected around the, the top of the cylinder or the club. And okay. that's where the spores sit. And so basidiomycetes disperse their spores in, in you know, on this club-shaped you know, spore dispersal mechanism. And then ascomycetes instead have their spores inside of a little sac, which is called an ascus. And that's something from yeast, I know that because if you're doing... Um, Yeast, when they sporulate, create what's called a tetraploid. So they have four little spores. So a, a 2N organism made four little spores, and they're contained in an ascus. And then you soak them in uh, snail saliva enzyme juice, basically, that breaks down the ascus. And then with a tiny, tiny little needle, you can separate those yeast spores and then put them together to do breeding of different yeast strains. Kind of wow. Thing. Okay. Okay. In theory, I think you can do this kind of stuff with, with mushrooms as well, although it can be very difficult to break down that ascus. Uh, it can be very difficult to get spores to want to mate and all sorts of stuff. Like so that. that same process by which you're breaking apart the little sac that's holding the spores of yeast, yeah. you think could be adapted to different kinds of, potentially different kinds of ascospore mushrooms. It's interesting to know that the difference really is on spore delivery mechanism. Yeah, it's, I mean, it, it really is. I think that's the biggest thing of how spores are delivered. And, and clearly there's some big morphological differences. You know, basidiomycetes right. contain pretty much all of the large uh, macro fungi that we are familiar with. Um, all the guild mushrooms, all the rustlers, boletes, uh, you know, chanterelles, jellies, etc. Ascomycetes tend to be smaller in general, cup fungi, microscopic fungi. I mean, the, the big ones that everyone knows are morels um, right. and helvella. Uh, some of those, you know, the gy gyromitra and stuff are all ascomycetes, uh, weird sort of sac couch-like fungi and stuff like that. And they're, they're very different looking. They're quite alien feeling almost like that. But that ascomycete also includes uh, thousands of species of yeasts and, and other, uh, other fungi as well. Um, so I think it's good to sort of understand the base biology. Functionally, it's not something you're going to run to that much unless you start doing a lot of microscopy, um, which right. is really interesting. But, you know, on a day-to-day -day basis, I don't take my stuff and load them on a, on a microscope. And I, I have a microscope. I'm just lazy. I do it when uh, <laughs> you do follow Damon. Yes, Damon Ty. Yeah, Damon is amazing. Whenever he yep. comes over for dinner, I pull out the microscope and he load, you know, he mounts some samples and <laughs> we get into it. Um, even one the first time he came over, I think we we had like eight kinds of cheese and we started throwing all the different like 
rinds of cheese on there to see what types of lactics and stuff were in the cheeses. And so it's, it's amazing once you get familiar with microscopy how much you can look at the world and all the hidden things that are there. Well, and it makes sense then as the, mic the microscope became a tool in the scientist toolkit, how that started changing the etymology of all these different mushrooms, the grouping. Now, what are the basics of fermentation? And is it the same process, whether you're making kombucha, you're making wine, you're making beer? Is that more based on the species of yeast that you're working with? Or what's kind of the one-on-one here? So, yeah, I'll try to give you this sort of quick, quick answer because I could literally do a two-hour podcast. It was yeah, I was going to say, it's literally years um, of study. So let's condense <laughs> it into five minutes. So, I mean, what, what we talk about most of the time when we're talking about fermentation is alcoholic fermentation. There's other types of fermentation as well, like lactic acid fermentation, um, and then you know mixed mixed types of fermentations. When you think about fermentation in a biological context, usually what you're thinking about is based on an ecological secession. So okay. in wine, particularly, you will come in from the vineyard, and you've got a plethora of different microorganisms on your grapes. Lots and lots of soil-associated bacteria some lactic acid bacteria, some acetic acid bacteria, tons and tons of non-saccharomyces yeast. So these are species of yeast that don't do, don't fully do alcoholic fermentation. Um, a lot of them can ferment up to like one or 2% alcohol, but then they kind of kick out because their membranes aren't built to survive high alcohol. Um, so even in this, in this complex mixture of stuff, saccharomyces can often come up and dominate that fermentation. But it takes time because there's stuff that they're doing like they consume all the oxygen, uh, they consume all the nutrients, they drop sort of the, the chemical environment and they, they create what's called a reductive environment by changing the reduction oxidation potential in fermentation. And all of that works to narrow the ecological niche and make it so that yeast or Saccharomyces are really the only ones that can run their metabolism under these particular conditions where oxygen is, is very low, nutrients are limited, and yeast is able to do um, two forms of metabolism. And they do a lot of forms of metabolism, but the, the two ones we're gonna think about are respiration, which is what we do. So we use oxygen to help digest our sugars, uh, use mitochondria to create all this membrane potential, and we get about 32 ATP or energy, it's called energy money, out of one sugar. And that's, <laughs> right. that's very efficient. That's why we as human beings can be big, we run around, do all sorts of stuff. Um, yeast can do respiration, but even in the presence of oxygen, if there's a little bit of glucose, they will often switch over to doing alcoholic fermentation. And that's because it gives them an ecological niche. They can knock back this huge population of other bacteria and non-saccharomyces yeast, um, kind of put them on timeout, and they can start running their metabolism uh, to do alcoholic fermentation um, because they're, they're the only ones that can do it. So they've just created their own sort of little special way of, of running, you know, running life and, and getting ready to face the next set of challenges. Because within a yeast population, there's always subpopulations of different yeasts that are sort of keyed in to do something. Uh, you know, guys that are sitting back waiting for the next bout of sugar, guys that are running ahead, ones that are sort of in the middle ground, just, you know, just waiting to see what happens. So that's, I mean, that's alcoholic fermentation. But after wine is finished primary alcoholic fermentation, you'll often get a secondary fermentation called uh, malolactic fermentation. So wine has some malic acid in it, which is a very sharp green apple flavor is basically the flavor of malic acid. If you've ever had like a green apple warhead, you just basically eat great malic acid. That's what it is. <laughs> sure, sure. So very sour, very sharp. 
And that's that's desirable in like a um, Pinot Grigio or Sauvignon Blanc. You'd want that really crisp acidity. So in those whites, they will once alcoholic fermentation is done, they will freeze it or like you know get it very cold, drop all the yeast out, filter it and keep it stable, then bottle it and and put it on shelves pretty quickly. Uh, a Chardonnay where you want something that's a little bit rounder, or like a red wine where you want a more comprehensive full mouthfeel, they will let it go through malolactic fermentation where you have not a yeast, but a bacteria called Enococcus enii coming through and doing a secondary transformation of all that malic acid into lactic acid. So that's sort of one set of ec ecological secession that happens to make, make wine. Um, in beer, generally beer is sterilized. And so you will put one yeast in there and that yeast is the primary driver of the beer style and the characteristics that you're going to get out of that beer. Um, so wine and beer okay. are very different in that sense that wine starts out with this huge mess of different organisms and it's, it's about the yeast's ability to outcompete those other organisms that allow wine to be made, whereas beer is just given all the resources, you know, yeast and beer are given all the resources they could possibly want and are just, hey, just get to 5% alcohol and it's cool if you don't go, don't go any further, you know, like. Well, and it's interesting to think that, you know, a, a big barrel of wine is almost like its own ecological system oh, full of these microorganisms competing. And so when we get that output where we want sugars transformed into alcohol, you know, that's not their goal. Their goal is to, it's interesting to hear about they're changing their environment so that only they are suited to it. It's like a competitive mechanism that's causing them to make that change. So I, I'm going to look at fermentation a lot differently now. There's a whole ecological a sequence of secession that's occurred here. I mean, that's yeah. fascinating. Yeah, that that is. I mean, for me, that was really mind blowing to understand that, and even even learning about that fermentation ecology and the concept of secession is part of what helped me understand mushrooms better. Um, right. You know, but even even the roots of that and my interest in that started as a kid because when I was like seven, my dad and I took a trip to Belgium, and Belgium is really famous for uh, the sour beer a double fermented sour beer called Creek. So they make one sour beer where they let like a mixture of different yeast and bacteria make a, a pretty sour beer. And it's like so sour, it might be kind of unpalatable. And then they'll go ahead and crush down a bunch of cherries and pitch that in and kind of re-ferment it out till it's like a half sweet pink beer. But it's a very microbially complex beer. And often when they, when they blend Creeks, they'll blend a uh, beer that has been aged for like three, six, and nine months all together into one blend. So that they're putting in a little bit of the nine month because that one is very sharp and acidic and they're using more of the three blend, three month one because there's more of it on hand. It's been brewed more recently. But again, that is Creek and these sour beers are very much a function of one organism does a fermentation, then another organism eats that byproduct, then another one comes by and eats that one. So you'll see like four, five, six, seven, eight different species all kind of spiking up and down as, as time goes on. And every single one of those things is contributing to the flavor, to the mouthfeel, to all the experience that you get when you have one of those beverages. And that in some ways relates back to thinking about kombucha. Because um, kombucha is, is sort of similar to like a sour beer in fermentation in that you have a mixture of um, probably Saccharomyces yeast, of non-Saccharomyces yeast, and of a lot of different bacteria. So you've got lactic bacteria as well as acetic acid bacteria. So the lactic bacteria are producing lactic acid, which is sour, and then acetic acid bacteria are taking the alcohol and converting that into acetic acid, which is even more, um, you know, vinegary, kind of gets under your nostrils. Okay. okay. Um, and, and I like to think of, you know, everyone's now familiar with SCOBYs, right? Right. 
Um, looks which, like a mushroom, kind of. Kind of. Well, and, and really what a SCOBY is, is a microbial coral reef. It is wow. a, yeah. a composite layering of lots of yeast and bacteria, and they are all linked together by the exopolysaccharides, and that's all the crap that yeast and bacteria are putting outside of the cell, and building you know, a 3D architecture of cells embedded in this mesh. And stuff that's too deep in it isn't gonna get the same nutrient exchange, but that's part of the, the reason that things are continuing to kind of build on each other, because much like a coral reef, they're, they're all sort of symbiotic, but they're all somewhat in competition too. So they're yeah. all kind of building up this larger and larger SCOBY as they're doing this ecological secession and eating those different byproducts and one, one organism is eating something and somebody else might be eating the poop of that organism or the, the waste product of that one. And so it's, it's really an amazing transformation. Um, I don't like SCOBY because I think it tastes like mold, but uh, <laughs> no matter how much sugar and ginger and other stuff you put in. Oh man, I love I love but, kombucha, but yeah, like I said, and I love that people love it, you know, do you need to add each specific organism that's required for the succession or are they so omnipresent? They kind of naturally coalesce and do their thing. I mean, that's, that's a, that's a really good question. It's also a somewhat contentious question. Um, in beer, you're pretty much always adding the, the yeast that you want. Okay. Um, in fact, in beer, often they will reuse yeast up to about 10 or 15 times. So wow. they'll harvest, they'll do a fermentation and, and then at the bottom of the tank, it's a cone and they'll filter off, like they'll pour out the first third of the, what's called trub. They'll harvest the middle third because that's, that's pretty good healthy yeast and they'll put that into another fermentation. And then the top third is mixed with hops and other stuff and they'll throw that out too. Um, and so they reuse beer, beer yeast and a lot of breweries will have a proprietary yeast or just a couple of, of yeast they use to drive different styles of beer. and and often they, they will buy them commercially and then kind of propagate themselves a little bit. Um, wineries is, is, are really mixed. Uh, most large commercial winemaking is done with uh, freeze-dried prepared yeast um, and or the wineries themselves will grow very large tanks of yeast and then use that to inoculate. But they're usually they're buying commercial strains and then putting that into their wine. And that's for process security. When you inoculate a wine fermentation, with a commercial strain, you get a strain that has good alcohol tolerance, good osmotic, you know, the ability to go from high sugar to high alcohol. Right. Uh, they're, they're very competitive, not just with bacteria, but potentially with other yeast. Uh, there's yeast, a lot of commercial yeast have something called a killer factor. And so they make a protein that they excrete that can go out and break holes in the membranes of other yeasts that are not of resistant to this killer factor. Murderous yeast. Yeah, murderous yeast. And then there's, there's also yeast that are resistant to killer factor. So you might want a yeast that is both makes a killer factor, but is also resistant to other killer factors, so they can't get outcompeted by other yeast. Because there's probably some inborn yeast just in oh, yeah, the air, in the liquid. There's always, or... there's always yeast. Yeast are omnipresent, bacteria omnipresent. They're, they're ubiquitous in our environment. Um, is there always enough to have a successful fermentation is another question, and that's part of why most commercial wineries will, will inoculate. Um, but that being said, there's a lot of places where they're still trying to do what's called a native fermentation, um, which isn't truly native because they think they're working with, like, when you say native yeast, you mean like endemic yeast that are from that area. Right. And most of the yeast that exists in our vineyards uh, or near wineries and breweries is actually commercial yeast that has kind of gone rogue and hybridized with other yeast out in the environment. Um, the, I didn't that mention sense. before, but 
So I mentioned that ASCUS and like the, the yeast ASCUS needs to get broken down for spores to be released. Right. So one of the, one of the natural places for uh, that to happen, and I watched years ago a talk from a grad student at Duke. She said the, the yeast dating scene was in the, the poop of fruit, fruit flies. And that's because uh, fruit flies will go and eat, eat grapes, and, and they're very attracted to fermentations. You're fermenting anything, fruit flies are all over it. So the fruit flies eat the yeast. The yeast end up sporulating in their stomachs because it's an acidic environment. They're not happy. Enzymes in the uh, digestive lining of the fruit flies break down the ascus. And then when the yeast spores come out in the poop, they've got an abundant source of nitrogen. So yeast start to hybridize in the poop of fruit flies. And that's where new species and new hybrids of yeast are coming from, especially in your vineyard. Um, oh, wow. That's, that's a lovely <laughs> thought. My wine is birthed out of the poop of fruit flies, creating some new kind of yeast. Hey, but I mean, that is, that is evolution. It's the reality. That, it's that evolution. is driving, yeah, that's driving new flavors and, and new stuff. So anyhow, guys who do um, what are called native or uninoculated fermentations are hoping that they've got the right mixture of, uh, of bacteria and yeast and, and particularly Saccharomyces on those grapes. And if you think about this, this is like, let's say there's like a hundred, a hundred fold bacteria, tenfold non-Saccharomyces yeast, and then like 0.1 fold of actual Saccharomyces. And um, that's what sort of the ratio is on grapes coming into a winery. So there's very little Saccharomyces. So if you're going to do one of these native ferments, you have to have a lot of confidence that you've got really good, strong yeast that can grow up and outcompete all of these other organisms that are there in fermentation. Right. So, Especially if you're thinking it's latent yeast. I mean, you better be confident in Exactly. And, and I don't know how you would gauge that. Is there a way to gauge, and this may be getting too deep into it, but is there a way to gauge kind of native yeast populations it, in a given yes, area? A lot of it is related to pH and the ripeness okay. of your grapes. So in Napa, where people let their grapes get very, very ripe, and they basically are making wine out of raisins a lot of the time because it takes wow. easier to make a high alcohol wine that's really fruity and really lush and big than it is to make a wine that's like a little bit green, but maybe a little more complex. So a lot of wineries have kind of just gone completely to the end of just, I'm going to, we're going to harvest raisins and make wine out of that. Um, but that has very high pH and that's very prone to spoilage oh, and it's okay. got very high alcohol. So that's a, a good reason. A lot of wineries here will not do a native ferment. When I was in New Zealand, um, their weather's not quite as warm. They don't get grapes that are quite as ripe and their pHs are much lower. So let's, but for comparison, a lot of pH of grapes in Napa is around, let's say 3.8 to four pH of grapes in New Zealand is like 3.2 to 3.4. And when it's more acidic, it's a lot harder for spoilage organisms to grow. So you're going to select more for the yeast um, that work well at those low, those low pH environments. So that's, that's one of the big determinants as to whether or not you're going to do native ferments. And then some of it is just understanding your vineyards and how you do your fermentation management with them. Um, adding sulfur dioxide to help knock back some of the bacteria and non-saccharomyces yeast uh, and managing your temperatures. Um, but the, the reason to do a native or an uninoculated fermentation is you're going to get more complexity because in that, that lag phase right. where yeast is still growing, where the saccharomyces yeast is still growing up to become the dominant organism, you're getting a lot of meta metabolic input from the bacteria and the non-saccharomyces yeast that are adding a lot of interesting characters to your wine. Oh, okay. An analogy might be like a commercial yeast would be like one guy playing the trumpet and then a 
you know, one of these native fermentations might be like a whole bunch of guys playing jazz in the background of that one trumpet player, you know, so there's a little bit more complexity there. You know, there is this ecological system and the output of that is really what's affecting the flavor and character of the final wine, you know, the final beer. It sounds like in general that beer is a much more sterilized and controlled process. Wine is kind of this complex, kind of uh, ecologically rich development that goes on. And just for my clarification, uh, non-saccharomyces yeast, what are those exactly that, so those aren't able to actually do that conversion of sugar to alcohol or what's... Yeah, yeah. I mean, there's there's a ton of different species. Um, okay. So I'm referring blanket to a lot of different species when I talk about that. Um, right. Those are the ones that generally do not, we're not using them to do alcoholic fermentation. Okay. Uh, they're, they're ubiquitous and present in our environment. Um, they're on they're on your fruit. They're on your vegetables. There's plenty of them that are on us. Um, I mean, the I, I can tell you being in grad school and having someone ask me at a bar, "Hey, what are you working?" I'm like, "I work on yeast," and they're like, "That's gross. Get away from me!" And I'm like, "No, not that kind of yeast." Um, <laughs> but but it's true. I mean, they're one of the fungi that is just absolutely everywhere. Everywhere. Yeah. And there's there's thousands and thousands, hundreds of thousands of species of yeast. And there's it's funny because if you start looking at it and you start um, doing genetic analysis, like we're now doing on mushrooms, they they break into clades, and you can see that stuff like wine yeast and bread yeast are actually fairly genetically similar. Okay. But beer yeast are genetically different because they have been on a different evolutionary track for so long. Um, and th- this is one of the things that I love to kind of point out to people is is we think that you know, human beings have been doing fermentation for 2,000, 3,000, I mean, way longer, like 10,000 years, right? We, right. Initially, we probably just had like baked some bread in a clay pot and it got wet and it got soaked and some yeast got in there and started producing an amylase and started eating the sugar and somebody realized, like, oh, this, eating this bread soup gets me a little bit buzzed. I want to do more of this. Um, but the question is, have we selected and bred all these different yeasts or did yeast just choose us? Like, there's these big dumb idiots that keep leaving around bowls of sugar for me to eat. I'm going to go to town on this, you know. Have oh, that's amazing. Come and and been part of our culture and our society. You know, again, they're not like thinking creatures, but you know, they've they've clearly integrated into us because we've given them a niche and we keep asking them, you know, to to do what they do. Uh, so I love again putting yourself in place in context of a yeast or a fungi or you know mushroom. It's it helps you understand where they're coming from, and I think it you know, makes us all a little bit better to have, have different viewpoints. So. I love getting this full breakdown of yeast. It is, would you say it's probably the most ubiquitous fungi in the environment, just in terms of how broad an area that it covers, how much it's in the air? Um, yeah, I, I, I think so. I mean, someone might come out of left field and tell me that I'm totally wrong. On I that. know, we're not going to stick you to <laughs> Gordon's preface this by saying he's not an academic mycologist, but it's just something that I had never thought about until I had actually started following your page. I had never thought about yeast and, you know, they're part of our biome in so many ways. Our, I, as I understand, they're part of our gut biome. Obviously, they're part of the biome of a lot of the food that, that we end up eating. Is there any similarity or overlap between yeast and mushrooms the similarity is in how they reproduce and that they use okay. spores and they have a similar reproductive cycle okay. um, yeast yeast are inherently uh single-celled usually and that's one of the defining features of them um yeah. again they they're very keyed in to do what's called quorum sensing which means that if yeast are sitting beside each other they're reading each other's chemical signals their metabolic outputs to understand hey how many of us are there you know, should wow. we keep growing? Should we stop growing? 
and based on you know different characteristics they're able to make judgments about their environment and i think fungi do a similar kind of thing when they're looking at competition are we is it just us are we growing all over this root are there other organisms or things that we're contending with how do we perceive that and and deal with that in our environment um so i think that's kind of an interesting you know crosstalk thing there i i think in the world of biotechnology uh people are utilizing both fungi i mean you know mushrooms and yeast to do a lot of um bio sort of bio expression uh the idea of cellular agriculture where we're taking uh what's traditionally been like an animal or a plant product and we're dropping it into a microorganism and then using what's called a bioreactor or basically a tank under controlled conditions where we're pumping in oxygen controlling ph pumping in nutrients bit by bit which is really not that different than what a wine fermentation is but you know it's all it's all fermentation to some degree and uh, and people are using these microorganisms a lot of them yeast uh one particularly picia is a great expression system people use to to build a lot of protein and they are producing stuff like dairy proteins egg proteins um there's i don't know are you familiar with the impossible burger you ever had one of those yeah of course yeah, well, I'm, I'm vegan so you're speaking kind of near and dear to my heart right now yeah, so I mean, Possible Burgers are great. Jerry absolutely loves them. I think they're awesome. Uh, they're super interesting because they took the heme protein, uh, which is an iron iron containing protein. Iron, iron, yeah. Yeah, we have we have hemoglobin, um, but this heme protein is a, an iron complex and allows it to bind oxygen, and it's from the roots of legumes. So legumes are plants that don't associate. One of the ten percent of plants that don't associate with mushrooms. Instead, they associate with bacteria, and they form these little nodules or nodes on their roots where bacteria invade, and the bacteria's job is to fix nitrogen for the plant. And that's why legumes are great for rotating crops because they will put nitrogen back into the soil because the bacteria are fixing atmospheric nitrogen into bioavailable like ammonia uh, for the plant. But these bacteria are very sensitive to oxygen. Too much oxygen will kill them, but if they don't have a little bit of oxygen, they can't run the process of, uh, of fixing atmospheric nitrogen. So the plants have produced this heme protein to bind oxygen and release it at a low rate that won't kill the bacteria but allows them to run their metabolism. And Got so that, that heme protein was taken by Impossible, dropped into a microorganism where they produced it, and then they were able to add it to their burgers to give you that nice, that red color and that nice meaty, irony flavor. And when they, they drop that heme protein in there, when they're dropping into that yeast, so when that yeast then grows, is that heme protein then embedded into yep. that bigger structure it, it, that grows? It's, wow. produced, it's produced by those yeasts, and then they're able to separate it out and get sort of just pure protein and then put that into their you know formulated burgers. And I think I just think that is like, the coolest bit of biotechnology that is also delicious. I mean, I like, I it's love amazing. that. And, and I, I visit that company for work and they're really cool guys. So it's, it's amazing to see that kind of stuff happening. So I think there is, there's a true marriage coming between, you know, yeast and fungi and mushrooms and, and biotechnology. And I really, we look at the future of food production and, and I think, you know, you're vegan. So you understand that, you know, meat consumption is not a sustainable practice, not as, as we do it. Um, I'm, right. I'm not about to go vegan. I like meat, but I eat very little meat compared to, you know, average American. I tend to buy weird stuff like tongue and feet because I get <laughs> off of trying to make things that are weird taste good. And, and you know, I clearly have a fun time doing it. Uh, but mushrooms are, are an amazing source of protein. And it, it really is incredible to see 
you know, uh, I think a pound of beef takes something like 1600 gallons of water per pound of beef. Right. And even like 60% of the world's arable land is devoted to growing crops for beef consumption or, you know, for beef feed. Uh, but only 2% of the world's protein is provided by beef. So that's a pretty staggering, like it's insanity. It doesn't work out. You know, there's, we're going to hit a tipping point. Um, where it, it just makes more sense to start looking at alternative proteins. And that's, that's where I get really excited about some of the stuff I'm seeing in the Bay Area where people are innovating new technologies based on mushrooms. And um, have you heard of Prime Roots before? I was just about to mention them. Yeah, Prime Roots. And are they using a similar process with yeast or with so they're, fungi? They're or what's using, their basis? Uh, they're using aspergillus. It's a koji fungus. So it's the same thing that you use okay. to make um, tempeh and miso. Oh, okay and natto, all those soybean products. And so they're growing aspergillus, they're getting fibers of the stuff, and then they're you know, doing food science to them to make them into sort of meat-like products. Some of the future of food production, really, because I've talked about mycotechnology as like building materials, as remediators, uh, and obviously gourmet mushrooms and forage mushrooms as food, but adding that dimension of kind of the science of using even something like yeast to create a new innovative food product is really interesting really cutting edge. You're eminently able to talk about this because you're someone who's studied yeast, who's into mushrooms and loves food. So it's kind of perfect. It's really educational for folks who are vegan, are vegetarian, that there are these viable substitutes out there that really not only offer you kind of the mouthfeel and the flavor and everything, but offer you a lot of the nutrition as well. That's what I think is so incredible about fungi is these amazing, I mean, essential amino acids, iron trace minerals i mean there's a lot in there when you start thinking of edible mushrooms and their constituents uh, you're holding up a shape what is vitamin uh, d i make a d yeah vitamin yeah d. yeah so like these key the nutrients only non, yeah only non-animal source of vitamin d that's wow. that's awesome. like especially as a vegan yeah you're not, you can't get vitamin d from a plant you just you can't and a mushroom is the only way you're going to get it and like like i was saying like beef is like 1600 gallons of, of water per pound and yeah. I know like my local uh, mycopia, gourmet mushrooms, I think there's something like 12 gallons of water per pound of, of mushroom protein. And that, I mean, that's a staggering difference when we talk about scalability and sustainability and like what, what are we going to have to do to feed the people on the planet? Um, and, and we could all eat well. Mushrooms are delicious. You know? <laughs> I, exactly. It's 7 billion and growing and we could all eat amazing, plentiful mushrooms and I think it's important, too, for people who already have made that choice to realize that integrating mushrooms into your diet is key, I think, to making a plant-based diet work. It was a huge game changer for me to realize, you know, all these essential things that mushrooms give you. And, and so I think they're kind of at, at the heart of the growing new food ecosystem that's developing here and really all over the world. That's a perfect segue. Uh, we're getting to be a little over an hour or so. Yeah. I, I can't leave you, though, without talking about, per, you know, some of your favorite edible mushrooms, favorite things you uh -huh. make with it. What are a couple of your favorites and just good ways to prepare them? Um, yeah, okay, a couple of my favorites. So one of my game changer mushrooms that I always, especially when people are like, I don't like mushrooms. I'm like, yeah, you've only ever eaten agaricus bisporus. And they're like, yeah, but I've had portobellos and I've had cremini. like, none of those are <laughs> all, the same, all the same damn mushroom. Right. I always tell people to try lion's mane. Lion's mane is the beautiful, puffy, white lobes of, of good mushroom texture, um, very mild. It's not, it's not dirty or earthy in any way. It has this very you know, beautiful sort of high note smell that I get when you smell it. Um, it fries up really easily just in a pan with some butter. I think my favorite way to do it is just on a breakfast sandwich. Fried egg, 
lion's mane, a little bit of cheese, or you could put some cashew butter or something like that, and just on an English muffin, and it's, it's really good. Um, I put it into all sorts of stir fries and other stuff. I've seen, you know, if, if I was a commercial mushroom grower and I had the enormous lobes of it, I've seen people like cut steaks of it and like bread and deep fry it. And I, I really Oh, that sounds that. amazing. That sounds, I want to try like the Popeye chicken sandwich, but with that, <laughs> that thing. And, and right. it's very, um, it's spongy too. So I think it would take up a marinade well. I, you know, one of the big things you want to do when you're cooking any mushroom is manage your temperature and your moisture content carefully. Most commercial mushrooms that I eat, I don't bother washing them because they're generally, especially if they're saprophytic, they're growing on dead wood, they're, they're okay. clean. You know, there's not a lot of dirt on them. Maybe if, you know, like brush them off. Right. Like by spores, I do generally use like a towel where I wash them off um, because they're grown in poop. Um, yeah, good to clean that off there. Could give them a little shine. Yeah, a little shine. But, but almost all mushrooms that I forage are ones that I will clean heavily because they're, they're covered in dirt. They came out of the ground. And I will, I will wash them and I scrub them. And then I put them in a dry pan to do a dry saute. So I cook the water out and then you add the fat. Because if you add the fat before you cook the water out, you're just going to end up with these sort of soggy, insipid mushrooms that will never get brown and crispy the way you that's want. something that I've done actually, or you, you might have just explicated why that sometimes happens to me is I put the fat in too early. Yep, yeah. Wait, wait until your mushrooms have bled all their water out and cook down right to the point where they're starting to kind of stick to the pan. And that's one reason I've had comments from people, why do you cook so much stuff in in uh, nonstick? And I was like, well, because sometimes when mushrooms get down to that point of almost sticking to the pan. If I'm in my cast iron, they just they stick to it. Um, right. My cast iron's not seasoned particularly well. I need to get on that. So yeah, lion's mane is one of my game changer mushrooms. I think that's absolutely delicious. Um, another one of my favorite commercial ones you can find is maitake because it is just oh, a phenomenal, great texture. Yeah, I mean, you can roast it. You can fry it. You can stir fry. I mean, literally anything works with some of these mushrooms. And sometimes you need a, as little as just a little bit of oil and salt. And then you can, you know, dress them up or put them in salads. Sometimes you can do a full marinade, teriyaki marinade, or anything you would do with meat, you can generally do with mushrooms, except that mushrooms are even more forgiving than meat because it's really hard to overcook them. I did burn some mushrooms earlier this week, but that's because I forgot them on the stove and I just left the burner on. They're um, not that forgiving. Yeah, they're not that forgiving. So if you burn them on the stove, then that's on you. But yeah, for the most part, it's really easy to cook. Um, so yeah, maitake and lion's mane are great. For foraged ones, I really like black trumpets. Those are some of my favorites. Um, really good texture. I mean, there's not too many foods out there that are inherently black. And, yeah. You know, it's it's kind of weird to like see this food and be like, oh, it's black. It's really delicious. Um, and especially like sprinkled in pasta dishes and eggs. And, you know, I, I think people get really caught up in there's only a couple of ways they know how to do mushrooms and almost every single mushroom cookbook will give you like a pizza, pasta and egg recipe. And people go, well, what else do I do with this? And I'm like, well, you can put mushrooms in anything. If you're sauteing yeah. vegetables, throw some mushrooms in there. If you're making tacos with meat, throw some mushrooms in there. Just, you know, that's, that's what most of my stories are is I'm making something and I just like, I have mushrooms in the fridge. I'm going to throw them in, right? So I'm just put them into the, put them in your food and eat them and they, they integrate well. That's the question a lot of people ask me is, well, once I have all these great mushrooms, what do I do with them? And it's like, right. well, actually, once you get through the processing, which like you said, is a lot of washing, a lot of scrubbing, the next step is actually the easy part is just throw them in wherever you use meat in a recipe, you can use mushrooms. So I think the important part to remember there, especially if you are cooking vegan, yeah, is like I said, managing the water and the fat. So you're okay. cooking the water out, 
but then be, pay very attention, close attention to the fat because mushrooms have no fat and fat is a big carrier of flavor. So right. if you are using, if you're cooking mushrooms and you're not going to use butter, which is inherently a tasty fat, and instead you use vegetable oil, make sure it's really nice, fresh vegetable oil, right? Don't use something that's kind of stanky and acrid has been sitting in your cabinet for a while. Um, or, you know, if you're going to use like coconut fat, be aware that that is going to bring a lot of that unctuousness and that coconut flavor to your dish. Right. Um, you could even look at like in, you know, imbuing your fats with flavor. So take some of your fat on the side, throw in a couple whole spices, throw in a clove of garlic, throw in some thyme, throw in stuff like that, put that flavor into your fat. And then you can strain that fat off of the aromatics and cook your mushrooms with it. So you're bringing all of that extra background flavor into that mushroom dish without necessarily having to have like whole cloves of cardamom or, uh, you know, thyme in your dish or something like that. I mean, you're this goldmine of kind of culinary content when we're on social media. So I had to ask some of the secrets and I think we've left with some really good ones, some really good principles, the moisture to fat content, and then even flavoring your fat for, for a more interesting, diverse uh, uh, palate. For me, this came out of the fact that I went to some really fancy restaurants that really made a big impact on me and how I thought about food. Uh, and I was like, man, I want to eat like this all the time. I was like, I can't afford to eat like this, but I can learn some of the tick, you know, tricks and tips that they use in, in professional kitchens and bring that home. And I'm not going to spend eight hours making like eight different sauces for my thing. But you know, maybe if I've got something in the fridge, I can kind of spin out something that I did like a week ago and integrate it with a dish and make it a little bit fancier, add a little more depth of flavor uh, than I would otherwise. And so that's, you know, most of what I cook isn't because I set out to cook it. It's because I looked in my fridge and said, what's going bad? What can I make that empty fridge? <laughs> By necessity, the mother yeah. of invention. That is more often than not why I'm cooking what I'm cooking. We just made people hungry, got people inspired probably about stuff they can make and at least some basic principles. But it's something that I really enjoy with your content on both YouTube, TikTok, Instagram. Are there any other platforms you're on? Any other places people should look to find you? Um, I got, yeah, I got a Facebook page too. I think the one that I would encourage, I would tell everyone to join this, but go join iNaturalist. Um, yeah. You know, if you want to get really creepy, you can see all the places I've observed mushrooms uh, and follow me around by date kind of thing. Oh, perfect. You don't have to stalk Gordon in person <laughs> to find his mushroom spots. Just get on iNaturalist. <laughs> but you mentioned, you mentioned TikTok though. And I just want to take a moment to mention, you know, talk about that because it's kind of a silly platform. I got it back like last August or something like that, just because I saw I saw one of our friends on Instagram blow up on TikTok and said, "Holy cow! What what is this platform?" Uh, and you know, for people who don't know, TikTok is short videos with music. Generally, there's a lot of dancing, there's a lot of silliness that happens on there. In essence, it's probably Chinese spyware, and it's definitely I was going to say that you make on yeah. your phone, and I'm pretty sure that it's being driven by the Chinese government to make America's youth dumber. Uh, but that being said. It's a fun social media platform where you can put music and videos together. And, uh, and I think I was surprised by the feedback I got. And I've seen that you absolutely shut up in the number of followers you got. So I think something that you're putting out there is really connecting with people. And that's, it's cool to see. I think TikTok is really that, that I'm glad you brought up the Chinese spyware element. That is so <laughs> hilarious to me because I, I think the same thing every time. I'm like, my face is probably getting tracked by some intelligence agent over in China. Or yeah, maybe it's just designed to make us stupider because you do kind of you're in a little bit of a daze when I use that thing for too long. Oh, uh, yeah. In terms of posting content, I think it reaches a really uh, huge audience, even relative to Instagram. Yeah. International, a younger demographic. 
Well, and I think that if they haven't over algorithmed themselves, which is something I've talked with a lot of people about Instagram is it's, you know, it's hard to figure out exactly what posts are going to get big and what posts aren't and how to make that happen and when to post. And it gets you in kind of this weird neuroses about posting on Instagram all of a sudden. Right. Or even if you pick a post that you're like, that should have done well. Why didn't that do well? Should I remove it and post it later? And it's like, no, I just, I just want to put stuff out there and I want people to appreciate it as it is. And if it goes viral or it doesn't, it doesn't matter. It just, it, yeah, it is, it is frustrating and it's, it's hard to look at at Instagram because it's changed so much over time as well. Yeah. That what used to work doesn't work. And now I'm not, I'm not even sure I'm allowed to use hashtags because I feel like I'm shadow banned. It's all, all this stuff that you get into all these issues where it's like, am I using too many hashtags? Whereas with TikTok, I post it and it feels very much like still the wild west of social media where it's just going to get out there to whoever's going to see it. It snowballs too, which I like, you know, it's not just like you post something and then on Instagram, sometimes you post something and like 24 hours later, that thing's dead. Like yeah. that's not getting much more traction. You never get another like. Whereas TikTok, it'll be like two weeks later, suddenly there'll be like a spike again. I'm kind of like, what is going on here? So I do kind of encourage people to go and fully conscious of what TikTok might yeah. be. It might be just Chinese spyware, but it is fun and it has helped me reach a whole new audience of people. I know it's helped you do the same and it has a different feel to it, a different vibe to it. So I'm, should, I'm loving we should, it. By the way, I meant to message you about this, but we should definitely do a duet on TikTok. I don't see anyone doing mushroom duets and I think we should do <laughs> Oh, we could totally do one. That's hilarious. That's hilarious. Um, well, I guess then as we're wrapping up, people can find you at Fascinated by Fungi. That is your website as well, correct? Fascinated by yeah, Fungi. And, and I'm with a website. I've got a couple of t-shirts on there. I'm working on getting yeah. more art, artwork done, collaborations with artists. I know you've been doing the same thing. And I love, I love to see that. I'm, I'm trying to support artists on Instagram, finding people who you know, help get them exposure, help give them some business, pay them commissions and, and get some really cool designs that are sort of inspired by, by what we're, what we're doing. It's really important for people to know that like when you're putting out t-shirts online or when I'm putting out t-shirts, like it's a way for people to support you. I think it's, a, this isn't a zero value game. You know, if you're watching Gordon's YouTube channel and you're watching him on Instagram and TikTok and learning information, you're deriving a pretty huge amount of value out of that. I just think it's important for people not uh, to, to know they can support, you know, social media folks in a way that really does help drive it forward. So if you're getting something out of it, don't hesitate to go online and, and go get one of Gordon's t-shirts or a puzzle. You have a puzzle on there even. Yeah, the puzzle is cool. I, I just did it a, a week ago. It was it was really fun. That was based on a great uh, piece of art done by Chris Oxley. Oh, amazing piece of art. I love I love his style. Um, but I'm, I'm working on putting on some more resources on there too. Uh, that's been, it's been a long time in the making that I've been meaning to do that. And I'm hoping that maybe with the world being shut down that I can spend some more time putting the resources on it's kind of a frequently asked questions thing. Um, I'd really love to do some more community building exercises, um, help people be aware of accounts that I think are really offering really phenomenal information, really good photography. Um, you know, one of these days, and I mentioned this, uh, when I saw a bunch of mush people back in January, is I'd love to have like an online, or not an online, uh, an actual in-person meeting, not in the age of COVID-19, but right. a year or two down the road, maybe we could all get together and have an actual um, actual convention or something where, where we get to present and give talks. And I know I've talked a lot uh, to Breakfast, uh, Breakfast of Champions, Anna, yeah. about this, but we, and, and you're doing it right now, we get to be the next generation of voices in the mycology community. Right, we get to define the direction of our discussion, the types of information that's shared, the level of discourse. 
And I think it's really important that we present good information and we don't sensationalize things and we, we help people understand and get passionate about nature uh, without getting too carried away in the fact that, you know, magic mushrooms have tremendous potential. They're great, but they're not, they're not a cure-all. And, you know, there's, there's things out there that are worth tempering some of the enthusiasm and trying to get people, you know, one of the first things when people go mushroom foraging, say, can I eat this? And I say, don't, don't ask me if you can eat this. Ask me what it is. If you can rephrase right. that simple question in your head instead of should I eat this to what is this, then you can say if I know what it is, I can answer the question about whether or not I can eat it. But just try to figure out what something is before you figure out whether you can put it in your mouth. Well, and I think you're spot on in that creating a media presence, whether it is conferences, it kind of set a discourse for mushrooms that accepts, that includes it all, but also comes back to a really grounded point of view uh, of all the different aspects of mushrooms and sort out some of the things that may be a, a little over the top, but really make sure we're shining the light on the things that really need to be known and doing it in a way that does inculcate community and doesn't reject people that are new to this in any way. I think that is really important. I'm looking forward to doing some more in-person events. Uh, we've done a few of them and it's been, we've gotten some great feedback. It's great meeting people in person that you've developed friendships with online. I mean, we met at the uh, uh, Fungus Fair in San Francisco just a couple months ago. And that was great. It's great to put a physical face to a name. So I love online community, but I love bringing it into the real world too. Hopefully we'll start seeing more of that in-person community development once uh, this huge quarantine and world wrecking virus is over. Yeah, once once the world gets back to some semblance of normalcy, we should we should definitely go foraging. <laughs> for sure, for sure. That's definitely high on my list is all the people I want to go foraging with once I'm let out of here. Just to wrap things up then, we've covered kind of where people can find you. What are a couple of the upcoming plans you have? You know, there's one that sticks out in my mind that I think is really exciting that you've got coming up. But what are some um, of the plans coming up for you? Well, I, I think unfortunately, pretty much everything I had on the docket has been has been canceled. Oh, of course, uh, yeah. I, what am I thinking? I was I was going to do a trip to Greece, but that's been on put on hold for now. Um, I had a, a talk at the Exploratorium that was going to be really exciting, but I I'm hoping some of these events will come back. Uh, you know, there's another there's a screening of Fantastic Fungi in Napa here. I was going to speak at, um, and unfortunately, all those all those things have passed. Uh, but I think there's there's bigger issues in the world now, so. What I'm what I'm focusing on is is trying to just make some good content to put out there and share with people. Hopefully, get some education going and, and get people passionate. And uh, I'm hoping when we can congregate in groups of more than you know five people at a time, that that we can have some some great discussions on mushrooms. And uh, I'd love to potentially host some classes. You know, I really what I want to do is cook and I'd love to do some catering and I'd love to do some big food events. And so I'm, I'm working towards all of those things. I had a, a great event back in, uh, I don't know if you came, but back in January with Muir's Tea Room in Sebastopol, we did a, a vegan mushroom event and that was, that was really fun. So I'm hoping to do more, you know, restaurant collaborations with that. I've got a couple places in Napa that I've been talking to um, about wanting to put you know, food and mushrooms and wine and fermentation, all that together and, and just do some, some great in-person events. Well, that's really exciting. And as someone who lives in your area, I am all for that because I want to attend <laughs> these events. So let's, let's get it going, Gordon. No, that's great. And then um, the one question I have at the end here as we kind of wrap things up 
is because I think you've answered. I usually ask people like, "What's one mushroom you like and why?" Uh, so maybe what's one mushroom we haven't talked about? Doesn't even have to be from a culinary angle. But what's one mushroom that that you like and why? It doesn't have to be a favorite. It could change in five minutes. But oh, man, yeah, I got, I got, I got so many. Um, I think one of my ones that I always come back to just because it is so strange and is so visually compelling is the beefsteak fungus or the fistulina hepatica. Yeah, I've uh, seen those on your page. Yeah, it's this it's this brown rot fungus uh, that grows on oaks on the East Coast and then on chinkapin oaks here in California. It looks kind of like a kidney or a liver growing out the side of a tree. Uh, when it's really young and wet, it's it's like red and goopy and slimy. As it gets older, it kind of fades and look more it looks more livery. It occurs on the same tree year after year. And you know it's like a cauliflower mushroom or another polypore in that similar way. It's a brown rot fungi, so it's eating the, the cellulose. Even chicken of the woods is brown rot, which you helped me realize because I kept thinking it was a white <laughs> rot fungus. But uh, yeah, I mean, you cut it off from the tree, and it, it has striations in the in the fungal tissue that looks like like meat. It absolutely is one of the most incredible things. It's eerie. It, it does fades and, and um, I mean the the whole the pore structure is amazing too because it it disperses its spores. It's like a polypore, but it's almost more like a bolete in that it has little tubes that go down and the spores come out of these little tubes, but it's not related to boletes in any way. So it's one of those like convergent evolution things that they figured out this efficient way to disperse spores um, that was different, you know, from the ways that have been done before. Uh, but that is, that is a phenomenal mushroom. I have eaten it raw. I've eaten it cooked. Um, despite its really beefy look, it has a very light, kind of lemony flavor because it has a little bit of oxalic acid in it. So it's not something that you'd want to eat like every day, but eating it once in a while is, is, is wonderful. It preps up great in tacos. It would work well uh, cooked and probably deep fried and stuff. You know, you could probably make a, a beef steak, chicken fried beef steak kind of thing. It's, it's just such a cool one. And that's, that's one that I think if we could ever master the commercial production of that mushroom, right. that stuff like Impossible Burger would get a real run for their money because I think some mushrooms already are better than anything that we could engineer food-wise. So I'm, I'm really looking to see companies you know, rise to that challenge in the future. And if, if I ever, everyone ever wants to give me a whole bunch of money to work on that, I would totally go start a company and, uh, and grow a couple particular mushrooms first. Putting the call out to food science investors, this man is ready to create commercial beefsteak mushroom right. production. I'm, re I'm ready, yeah. And then with all your work, I mean, all the giant kind of scope of your work, which is giving talks, putting yourself out there on social media, educating people, what's kind of the lasting impact that you really hope to make? What's the big takeaway you hope you hope people get from your work? I hope to drive passions. You know, I hope to engage people in a way that's, that's healthy. Uh, mushrooms have been an incredible source of mental health for me. Uh, one of the reasons I even got into it so much in New Zealand was I had a relative who passed away and it was a very difficult emotional time being really far away from home and not getting to sort of see my, um, my friends and family in person. And going out for mushroom hikes was an incredible way to sort of work on my own mental health. And I think that as people get into foraging and get closer to nature, it really allows them to kind of focus on what's important in their lives. And so I hope that I can share some of that mental health with people um, and convey some of the passion and enthusiasm that I've picked up and uh, hopefully get a few other people fascinated in fungi. So, A beautiful message and it's a theme that I've seen with a lot 
of folks who are into foraging or into mycology is kind of the the therapy and mental health aspect that comes with communing with nature and even kind of that spiritual connection you get from from going out and communing with nature so that's a beautiful thing i hope i hope people do get inspired more and more people get inspired if you're looking at your page just get out there and get fascinated yep well, Gordon, I appreciate the time so much. I know with scheduling, we've had our own little technical technical difficulties on my side, but I really appreciate you sticking along and uh, coming on for the interview. It's been amazing. Awesome. Yeah, it's been been fun talking to you. And uh, I got to say, it's it's nice to hear you talk at a normal cadence because your videos are very uh, <laughs> neat. The character. Uh, yeah, the character. But it's it's nice to know that that you are who you are. So thank you very much for this. And uh, I'm excited to, I got to listen to some of your episodes. I think you've had some phenomenal guests and there's incredible knowledge that's being shared. So I'll, I'll give them a listen and, and hopefully we can talk again soon. Yep, absolutely. And I'm excited to add this one to the collection. All right, man, we'll talk again soon and hopefully forage soon. Yeah.